Hey, all right, we're going to start. So if you're giving your offering, getting coffee, just make your way in as soon as possible. So we did a series on seeing and perceiving and understanding our perceptions, shifting our perceptions. It's kind of start uh, first um, part of a new year for us, and so we want to sort of start the new year off with kind of coaching you into seeing differently. And then we're, so now we're doing a thing on calling and hearing calling, and kaleo is the word. So it's a very, uh, I would say it's probably one of the most important Greek words in the New Testament, and it means to it means to call out from and into, and not just from, but into. So a lot of times in Christianity, we understand calling, like we're called out of darkness, and I'd say yes, but we're called into light. And so kaleo is the Greek word calling. It's so primary to the Christian faith that the church is the root word of the church, Greek word for the church in the Bible is called ekkalosia, or it's the root word is kaleo, same thing, called, called out from, called unto, called out away from, called towards. So what I hope to do for you today is we're going to look at Numbers chapter 6. I'm going to kind of just give you a little bit of an overview of it. But what I want to do at the end of Numbers chapter 6, which is in the Old Testament, um, it's part of the first five books of Moses. Moses wrote them um, by the Holy Spirit, of course. But at the end of Numbers chapter 6, there's something called the priestly blessing. And we say it every week here. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord cause his face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you and give you peace. You guys know what I'm talking about? Amen. So I want to <laughs> so give you a framework of what that is. But I also want you to understand where it's coming from. And I believe that that blessing well, let me just go. We'll go back up and go this way. So Numbers chapter 6, at the end of Numbers chapter 6 is this blessing. But this blessing is directly connected to something called a Nazarite vow. And you're like, what in the world is a Nazarite vow? So in the Bible, we have something called a Nazarite vow. We have a city called Nazareth. And we have people from Nazareth who come from that town called Nazarene. So Jesus was called a Nazarene. Wow, you guys are great. And so there is a vow that a Nazarite would take, but there's also a purpose that the Nazarite was to fulfill. You understand this? So while we don't have any evidence of Jesus taking a Nazarite vow, what we do have is that he fulfilled the purpose of the Nazarite. And I'm going to show you how, and I'm going to show you why that matters. Okay, so you with me? Yeah? All right. So a Nazarene, so Jesus called a Nazarite. So what it, basically a Nazarite vow was, is that God gave a provision in his word that if someone, a man or a woman, wanted to consecrate themselves unto him, they had to do a ceremonial con 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 uh, uh, consecration. And they had to take a vow, which basically meant no wine, no dead people, and no haircuts. Right? So they couldn't cut their hair they could, for whatever period of time. And it could be they would designate the period of time. Sometimes it was years. Sometimes it was months. So typically it was at least 30 days. So they would do a Nazarite vow of no wine. no. And, and the purpose of that was it was to be an outward demonstration to the people. So it was related to an external, particularly in the Old Testament. What you need to understand between the Old Testament and the, Old, and the New Testament is everything that was external in the Old Testament is now internal. Everything in the Old Testament was based on external righteousness, and everything in the New Testament is based on internal righteousness. What the Bible says is the Old Testament, or the law, Torah is the word, or way, the way of God in the Old Testament was a foreshadow, or was to point the way to the new, the new and living way, or to a better way. Okay? 
So, for instance, uh, righteousness in the Old Testament was determined by your ability or your inability to keep the law, the outward commandments. And the purpose, the reason God gave them all these outward commandments was to show them that they couldn't do it. And so if they, they, God gave the, let's just look at the Ten Commandments, they, by not being able to keep the Ten Commandments, and so you know nobody can keep them. Okay? So I hear, I've heard pastors, I've been in churches where they tell you, well, you got to keep the Ten Commandments. Well, who can? How, how are we doing on that? Anybody working on that? How are we doing? I, 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 I'm not doing really good on that. Okay? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Go Patriots. Oh, sorry. You know, <laughs> have no idols before me. Go Falcons, you know, whatever. So, but have no idols before me. Worship nothing or idolize nothing but me. Do not take the Lord's name in vain, right? Honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother that it may be well with you. Don't murder. Oh, I'm good with that one, really. Have you hated somebody in your heart? Here's where it really gets down, and down to the nitty-gritty. Have you ever hated someone that you wished them dead? Never? Yes? Okay. The Bible says you're guilty of murder. Jesus says if you say in your heart and you do that from your heart, it's good. So the point was we can't keep it. The last commandment sinks all of us. The last commandment is based on covetousness and jealousy. Do not covet or desire what another person has for their expense, for, for, at their expense. It's not an issue to want something that somebody else has, but it's an issue of wanting it at their expense. Oh, why do they have it? Why do they get to have that and I don't get to do that? Oh, why that person doesn't get that? That's coveting. That's actually the one that sunk Paul. If you know anything about the New Testament, Paul realized he was a sinner based upon the 10th commandment. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, son, daughter, dog, you know, job, uh, pedigree. You shall not covet that. Paul said, I'm done. Because he realized that the law was not external but internal. And so no one can keep the 10 commandments. And so God created an external system to show us that what we really need is the internal system. Then the New Testament, everything shifts. If you read your Old Testament, you see a lot of warfare and a lot of battles. God's people against the devil and all this other crazy, these demonic people and giants with six fingers and toes and crazy stuff like that. All kinds of crazy battles going on. But it's going on in the physical world. What happens in the New Testament is the battle shifts from the physical world to the spiritual now we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, mights, and dominions. That's what we wrestle against. Our weapons of our warfare are not, are not physical, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. So the warfare in the New Testament is not a physical warfare, but a spiritual. So there was a shift. When Jesus came physically, and then he shifted everything into the spirit. And so that's what happens. There's a transition between the Old Testament and the New Testament. What was physical now becomes spiritual. So while the Nazarite vow was a physical vow that guys like Samson took, Jesus, even if he was a Nazarite, we have no evidence that he took the vow, but on top of that, there's no, he, we know he drank wine. We know. It wasn't unfermented grape juice. You say, well, how do you know that? They told me it was unfermented grape juice. Really? Then why'd they call him a drunk? He's a wine bibber, a drunkard, because he's drinking wine, okay? We know he drank wine. We know he had dead people because he touched dead people. Lazarus touched the girl, Talitha Kumai. You know, we know that he was touched dead people. We don't see him getting a haircut anywhere, so we're not sure if that happened there at all. But nonetheless, we know that he, he, we, he didn't. And so he wasn't interested in fulfilling an external. But the Nazarite had a purpose. So when someone was consecrating themselves to God, you can put the next slide up. When somebody was consecrating themselves to God, they were doing so for a purpose. It was devotion and consecrate, to make sacred or with sacredness, to give an act that was sacred to the Lord. For what reason? The purpose of a Nazarene, okay, was the, the idea was deliverance and restoration. 
So when God, when they would take a Nazarite vow, God's purpose for this person being consecrated and devoted was for them to be used as an instrument of deliverance and for them to be used as an instrument of restoration. You say, how do you know that? Well, we can see it clearly with Samson. Samson was to take a Nazarite vow. To do what? To deliver the God's people from their enemies and to restore them to their rightful position. The word nazar is, is where we understand what the word, what the purpose actually was. Nazar means root, branch, or shoot. Okay? Somebody told me this first service at the Florida holly tree, that if you cut down the Florida holly tree and you just leave its roots, branches will spring up. Anybody ever seen a tree like that? Up north they have willow trees. Like some, I, I know in Texas they, they the mesquite trees. The only way you can kill a mesquite tree, they tell me, was with dynamite. You've got to blow the thing up, apparently, because it'll keep growing. And so the idea with a Nazarene is, is it is a branch of something that has been cut down. That's the idea. And so, okay, we'll look at Samson. So Samson, the nation had been cut down. The nation had been fallen. They're now in captivity to their enemies. So there's a cut down thing. And so out of this, God forms a branch. He shoots a Nazar off of that cut down thing for the purposes of deliverance and restoration. Understand this? Jesus is a Nazar. So we see, in, not only is he a Nazarene, but in the book of Jeremiah, he says, my servant, the branch, shall accomplish these things. So in the Hebrew, which prophesying Jesus is coming, it's a prophetic word over Jesus, is, is coming, it says, my servant, the Nazar. So Jesus is a shoot or an offspring of something that had been cut down. Well, what, is he, what had been cut down? Well, at this time in history, the nation of Israel had been cut down. And again, they are servants to their, their masters. We have the human race that had also been cut down. Can we agree with that? So Jesus is, a, is an uprising of something that had been cut down. The human race had been cut down. So the, the branch comes to deliver and restore what's been cut down. That's why you see a branch. And if you let that branch grow long enough, that branch will literally consume the roots from which it's growing, and you'll have a new tree. So again, deliver and restoration is the purpose of the Nazar. So Jesus' purpose is to deliver and restore. Not only was Jesus a branch of a cut-down nation and a cut-down race, he was, this is important because this really gets you, you get to really understand your Bible. Jesus is a, is a Nazar of a cut-down line of kings. So what does that mean? Jesus was called king of the Jews. You ever heard that? Right? So that's not just a myth or a metaphor. He had, in order for him to actually claim that title, uh, Pilate, when he crucified him, put that title over him, and the Jews wanted it taken down. But he said, I have written what I have written, it shall stay. Jesus, in order for Jesus to even make that claim, he had to have two things. He had to have a legal right, and he had to have a blood right. Without a legal right and without a blood right, he could not claim to be king of the Jews. And so what we have to understand is in the New Testament, we have Herod, right, who was king of the Jews, but Herod was appointed by Rome. Herod was not of the bloodline of David. So Herod had no legal right in God's eyes to the throne, and Herod had no blood right to the line of David, to, to, to the throne of David. So who did? Well, at the time of Jesus' birth, his father Joseph is a direct descendant of David through Solomon, through Jehoiakim, which was the last king of the Jews. So the person who had the legal right and the legal claim to the throne of Israel at that time was none other than Jesus' earthly father, Joseph. So Jesus, not being born of Joseph, but being born into Joseph's family, would get the legal right of Joseph to the throne. So Jesus had a legal right to the throne. Well, where's his blood right? Well, his wife, his mother Mary, again, an ancestor of David, not through the line of the kings, but through his other son, Nathan. So she, too, 
fulfilled the prophecy that he will be a descendant of David and he will sit upon the throne. So Jesus literally had legal and blood right to the throne of Israel. The Jews never disputed, disputed his claim. There was not one dispute in the New Testament that says, who gives you the right to be king? Because he's walking around saying he's the king of the Jews, and I guarantee you these guys would look that up. They would look it up. And if he was not legally king of the Jews, or he didn't have a bloodline that went back to the, to the, Jew, to the line of David, specifically through the, to, to the King David, then they would, they, would, they would have blown him out of the water. And so Jesus is a Nazar of the, of the cut-down line of the kings. The last king of Israel was a guy named Jehoiakim. Well, if you want to count his nephew, but he doesn't count. The Bible calls Jehoiakim the last king. And then uh, Nebuchadnezzar put, like, one of his family members, but it's nonetheless. Jehoiakim was the last king. You guys want to hear a funny story about Jehoiakim? I love telling this story about Jehoiakim. Okay, Jehoiakim's being prophesied by two prophets, right? And so Babylon is at the gates of the city. The Lord said, listen, guys, I've been dealing with you for 150 years. If you guys don't come around, I'm going to give you into the hands of Babylon, and they're going to take you away until you understand who you are. Then once you understand who you are, I'm going to give you back what you had. And so the people are like, oh, what do we need you for, God? We're going to do our own thing. So Babylon came, Nebuchadnezzar came, and Jehoiakim was the king during that time. And he had two prophets prophesying to him. One said, you will be taken in chains to the land of Babylon. The other prophet said, you will never see the land of Babylon. And Jehoiakim would literally mock the prophets of God. He would laugh. Ha, 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 you guys can't even get your story straight. You're telling me I'm going there in chains, and your brother over here, your dude over here is trying to tell me I'll never see it. I'll never see Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar storms the gates, comes into Jehoiakim's palace, summons him before him. Nebuchadnezzar and all of his men brings Jehoiakim's entire family into the court, kills them all right in front of his face. And then he takes a hot iron and puts out both of Jehoiakim's eyes, claps him in chains, and takes him to Babylon. Was the word of God true? He went to Babylon in chains, but he never saw it. Yeah? Yeah? Honor the word of God. Samson was a deliverer, so here we are. So Jesus fulfilled the purposes of a Nazarite. Jesus came to deliver us. He's the shoot of a fallen nation. He's the shoot of a fallen race. He come to do what? To deliver us from sin, to deliver us from the devil, and to deliver us from judgment. The Nazare, the uprising, the shoot of the fallen ones, he has come to restore us. This is things that I told first service. You may not understand this fully, but you've got to grasp the concept. You at least got to buy into the idea of the truth of this matter. You have been freed from sin. Romans 6, we've been talking about this the last couple weeks. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. It's not who you are. Do not see your life in light of who you were. Do not see yourself in light of your behavior or in light of a former identity. See yourself for who you are in Christ and who he has called you to become. That's how the Bible calls us to see ourselves. That's how the Bible calls us to be. Is we're not to reckon to ourselves in light of our sin. He came to deliver us and he came to restore us. Restore what? Restore us to a rightful position, which is rightful authority, and he came to restore us as in his rightful sons and daughters of God. The heavens, even the highest heavens, belong to the Lord, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. He has come to restore positional authority in the earth through the believer. We carry the authority of heaven. The people without Christ don't carry the authority of heaven. We carry the authority of heaven. If it's going to happen, the Christian's got a partner. 
or it's not going to happen. We're waiting on God. We'll keep waiting. Keep waiting. Until the Christian partners, nothing changes. Until the Christian agrees, nothing changes. Until the Christian understands their rightful place and their responsibility, in that nothing happens. Nothing changes. Wishful thinking. Ships sailing and going around. Destiny floating as it passes you by. There it goes. Jesus has come to restore us to a rightful authority. If you look at the word sin, the word harmatano is to push away. The Bible says we sinned. We pushed God away. Man said, I'm my own God. I don't need you. I don't need you telling me what to do. I don't need you telling me what I am. I don't need you to do anything. I'm pushing you away. That's what the Bible calls sin, the sin of condemnation. And we've left ourselves separated from God because of our sin. God never separated himself from us. We separated ourselves from him. And the Bible uses the word offense to push away. That's why when you come to Christ, you must return, right? Sin that condemns man is that he's Lord of his own life. I'm the master of my own heart. I'm the master of my own fate. Nobody tells me anything. I can tell you who God is. I'll make him up if I want to. If I don't think there's a God, well, that's okay too. Intellectual idolatry. Man thinking he actually can tell, can tell God that he doesn't exist. I mean, that literally, when you look at these intellects and the things that they say, it is literally the height of stupidity. You think that you, genius, can tell us that there is no God. You think you're smart enough or powerful enough to tell the universe that God doesn't exist. That's the height of arrogance. Who do you think you are? I mean, look around that. The earth itself testifies that there's a Lord. The earth itself testifies that there's a God. Proverbs would say this, go to the ant, you sluggards. Learn from nature itself. Ants operate in wisdom. Why do you operate in foolishness? The fool says in their heart, there is no God. So Jesus doesn't even have a problem calling it out. You say there's no God, you're a fool. Next question, moving on. Blind leaders of the blind. Leave them to themselves. So he comes to restore us to our rightful position. We've pushed God away. When we return to Jesus, what's the L word we call him? Lord. Why? Because it is, it is a humble process. I am not Lord. You are Lord. I bow myself before you and return to you. That is necessary for salvation. Without the confession as Christ is Lordship, you are not saved. Without the exchange of your heart to him, you are not saved. I don't care what Grandma Betty told you. You're not born again. You must give your heart to him, all that I am for all that you are. That's what you must do. Otherwise, it's not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, is actually saved. Do you understand that scripture? Well, what constitutes salvation? The exchange of the heart and the confession of Christ as Lord. Why? Because separation came when we pushed him away. Restoration comes when we return. You get it? We pushed him away, creating the void. Jesus comes, makes a bridge, and says, you can come back if you want to. But you don't get to come back. If you, if you don't want to come back, you don't have to come back. Stay where you are. But you get to come back if you want to. What's the predication? You acknowledge me as Lord. Lord of all. No other gods before me. I am God. There is none higher than me. There is salvation found in no other name other than the name of Jesus. You acknowledge that. Come on. Yeah. This, this is what it is. This is what it is. This is what it looks like to be saved. Right? He not only restores us to rightful authority, he restores us into a position as sons and daughters. This is monster. Huge. You have got to understand who you are in Christ. And they have got to understand that you are a son or a daughter before him. 
You've got to learn to accept that as your identity. You've got to learn to see yourself in light of that identity. And you've got to learn to walk that out as your identity or nothing changes. You're an observer in a faith that's called you to be a participant. You've got to see yourself as heaven sees. Heaven doesn't see you any other way. Son of God, daughter of God. That's how he see in Christ, that's who you are. The Father doesn't see you any other way. Why do you see yourself differently? He doesn't see you any other way. So we see ourselves as he sees, we see ourselves in light of that, and we begin to live. What would it mean if you lived your life as a son of God? What would it mean if you lived your life as a daughter of God? What would it mean if you really understood you were supernatural and divine royalty? How would that change? Well, I don't feel like it. I didn't ask you if you felt like it. I didn't ask you if you even looked like it. Feeling like it and looking like it are two different worlds. The facts are, the truth says, you are. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are called out of darkness and into his marvelous light to declare. What would it look like if you actually understood who you were? How would you live? It's an identity issue. I was talking to a guy right here, and, and uh, I hadn't seen him in forever, and he's like, he's like, oh, Pastor Kevin. You know, and I love it. I'm like, oh, thank you. Because usually I don't, get, I don't always get warm embraces. But he's like, I haven't been in this church for a long time. And he's like, man, I've just missed this place. This place has done so much for me. And, all this other and so I'm hugging on him and everything. And uh, he starts telling me what he's doing. He's a bodyguard for, like, some really high-profile people. And, um, and he's telling me he's getting ready to – he's dealing with these people, and then he's going to go and do with these other people. And, uh, yeah, people. I don't want to mention their name. He's telling me, but it's, it's not really important. Jesus is the only rock star. So the, the, point, the point is – is he was talking to me about the brokenness about this one person that he's, he said, I really feel like this guy's open. He's like, but he's just, he just seems like he really, he's really broken. And I told him, I said, he doesn't know who he is. That's it. Identity solves it. He does not understand who he was created, that, that, that he was created to be and do as God would have him to be. He's seeing himself in light of how others would see him. Or he's seeing himself in light of his brokenness. Or he's seeing himself in light of his failures. As you see, so you will be. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. How do you see yourself? Do you see yourself in light of your brokenness? Do you see yourself in light of your sin? Do you see yourself in light of your failures? Jesus doesn't see you that way. I didn't say you're not broken. I didn't say there's not failures. Okay, all that's great. But you're a son, so we take those things to our father, and we say, Daddy, fix it. I'm broken. Daddy, fix it. I failed. Daddy, fix it. That's the idea, part of the idea. So he restores us to our rightful authority. He restores us to our rightful position as sons and daughters. Jesus fulfills the purpose of the Nazare. Everything Jesus does, he does in response to his word. He fulfills his word. Understand that? Nothing that he does is outside of the economy of his word. He either, if you read your Gospels and you read the Gospels, you're going to see Jesus revealing the heart of what he meant because men oftentimes interpretate and misinterpret what it is he was actually saying. So you see him eating grain, and they're like, oh, it's not lawful to eat grain. Jesus is like, really? Is that what you think I meant? I think you don't eat, you think you think I meant that you shouldn't eat food on the Sabbath if you're hungry? Really? Spirit of stupid. That, that's like, how do, how do you, what made you think that's what I meant? Oh, you're not lawful to heal on the Sabbath. He's like looking at him, really? Is that what you thought I meant? That we don't heal anybody because it's the Sabbath? Is that what you think I meant? So you see him redefining things. And, and women, we were just talking in the back. Women, if you want to see where everybody freaked out, they freaked out when Jesus talked to the women. Oh, my gosh. You see more like, oh, my gosh. She's, she's a Syrophoenician woman, Jesus. You're talking to her? 
Oh my gosh, you're talking to that woman that's in adultery? Oh my gosh, they were like having a meltdown. And Jesus was like, do you really think my heart was to exclude 50% of my creation? Do you really think that my intention was to cause them to be subservient? Do you really think that? Is that really what you think I was trying to do? He didn't have any problem. He'd blow it out of the water. Doesn't matter what religious people think. He's the Lord of all. He's the authority. He stepped into the circle. And he said, this isn't what I meant. You guys got a problem with it? Deal with it. You got a problem with healing? Oh, well, deal with it. You got a problem with women being complementary to men? Not beneath them, but they're complement. That's the design. Men and women are complementary one to the other. Different in roles and functions. Can I get a witness? But complementary one to the other. Co-equal heirs with Christ, made from the side, not the foot. Huh? Made from the side, not the head. Co-equal, complementary. Who told you that? Your Bible doesn't say that. Never said that. And so he blasts it. And he doesn't have a problem with it. Anybody else got a problem with this? You guys want to go? Go ahead. This is how it is. The problem is, is that we have intellectual barriers that prevent us from seeing him who he is. We have doctrinal barriers. I, somebody asked me the other day, they asked me like what, like I was talking, I think I was talking to pastors, they have a couple pastor guys, and they were talking to me about like difficulties in, I, in the church, and they're like, oh, we have all these difficulties over doctrine and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, well, we don't really have that. And they're like, well, you don't have any pushback? And I said, yeah, the biggest pushback, you know what the biggest pushback I've ever gotten? Ever. For the most part, we're ministry of grace. You know, we don't really, you know, people don't debate doctrine with us too, too much. You know, the biggest pushback I've ever got, you know what it is? Healing. Oh, my gosh. You would think I'd ushered the devil himself into the chair as soon as we started healing people. You know what? And they say, oh, that's not God. It's not God. That's the devil. Devil's the one healing. I go, go, let me get this straight. So Jesus is the one making people sick, and the devil's the one running around healing people, everyone. I just want to make sure that's what you're telling me. That's literally what the church says now. Oh, well, you've got that affliction, brother, because the Lord's trying to teach you something. It's the Lord's will that you have it. Oh, I got healed, pastor. Oh, that's of the devil. Oh, that's of the devil. What? Again, spirit of stupid. Where is that? It's not in your Bible. It's not in your Bible. Tell the person who's been healed that God doesn't heal. <laughs> you know what changed me? I'll tell you what changed me. He paid for it with his blood. And if it meant that much that he paid for it with his blood, who are we to think we shouldn't do it? Who are you to exalt yourself to such a degree that you exalt yourself against the very thing that he commanded? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils. That is the command. <laughs> Upon all. I'm not saying we know what we're doing. I'm not saying we got it all figured out. But the command is over all of you. And it is a command. It is called an emphatic imperative, which means it's not a debate, it's not an option, and he's not asking you. When Jesus gives an emphatic imperative, it is a command. Amen. And what does he say? Not to the pastors, heal the sick. You do it. Raise the dead. You do it. Oh, How? With the power of the Spirit in divine partnership with the Lord. Cast out devils. How? In divine partnership with the Spirit of the Lord. It's our mandate. It's our mandate. Embalm doctrines of men, neuter the church, and render it powerless, making the church nothing more than a moose lodge. 
My mother was a part of a Moose Lodge, so I grew up with the Moose Lodge, so I can talk very well about the Moose Lodge. And I love the Moose Lodge, quite frankly, because it was always a fun place to go. They always had food, right? There was always a few drunk guys there giving out money, so it was always, it was always fun. It was a social club for charitable shows. It was a charitable social club. That's what it is. That's what the Moose Lodge is. It's just a charity with a bar that's a club. So guys go there to be the bar and throw $20 down or whatever and become, get, pay their dues so they can support orphanages. It's a wonderful organization. Bless them. But without the power and the spirit of God, the church is nothing more than a moose lodge. Change the shingle, people. I'm serious. We're nothing more. But with the power of God, we are world changers. We are revolutionaries. We are the most powerful entity the world has ever seen. We are an unstoppable force. And the enemy knows this. And so what does he attack? The identity of the believer. When Jesus was in the woods or in the, in the wilderness, if you are the son of God, what's he attacking? Help me out. His identity. What do you think he attacks with you? Your identity. Because he knows if you know who you are, he's in big trouble. I'm serious. He knows that when you figure out if you figure out who you truly are and what is truly yours, he's in trouble. Amen. And why? And we have churches, and I'm going to put it out there. I'm going to drive a truck through it. It would be a revolt against me. You know, but we have churches that teach doctrines of devils and men and say that God doesn't heal. And say that there's the Holy Spirit and the miracles died with the apostles. I've had them tell me that to my face, friends of mine. I go, all of them? So there's no more miracles. Nope, no more miracles. None. I go, including salvation? Well, no, no. Salvation, because salvation's a miracle. You know, so do you mean to tell me Jesus has taken every miracle from the earth except salvation? Do you mind giving me a verse on that? And they quote this obscure verse in Corinthians which absolutely has no application to what they say. None. They can't give you a verse. They can't give you anything. It's an opinion. It's a doctrine of men. It's called a dogma. It's not a truth of the Bible because they don't want to press into power because they don't want to figure it out and they don't want to have all of the difficulty that is related to figuring it out. They create a doctrine of comfortability so that they can rest and have no responsibility at all. That if they don't, well, we don't pray for the sick because God doesn't heal. What they're really saying is, we don't believe that we don't, we don't understand who we are. And what they're really saying is, is if we pray for somebody and it doesn't happen, we don't want to be embarrassed. Who cares? Who cares? Come on. Come on. Come on. All day. All day. It will increase, it will increase, it will increase, it will increase. As you press in, it will increase. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. He puts us as our rightful place. Next slide. We have to take, we have to understand who we are. And you have to understand that there is a war against who you are. Healing was a popular doctrine in Jesus' time. Casting out, he casts out devils by the devil himself. Oh, well, we know, Jesus, you're setting people free and delivering them from all demonic oppression. We recognize that. But we just would like to tell you, <laughs> based on our arrogant, humble, manly opinion, that you do that by, devil himself, by the devil himself. And Jesus said, can a house divided stand? Like, are you serious, spirit of stupid? Is that really how, what, what's going on here? I mean, at some point, we've got to deal with the reality of what it is that we believe. At some point, we've got to confront what it is that we actually believe. 
Or, again, we're nothing but a moose lodge. You say, well, what happens if we pray and nobody gets healed? Well, we're going to pray again. Amen. What happens if we pray and they still don't get healed? We're going to pray again. What happens if we pray, then we're going we're to pray again. We're going to seek the Lord. We're going to pray. We're going to pray. We're going to pray. We're going to pray. But we're never going to go, well, Jesus just doesn't want to heal you. Or, you know, if you did get healed, well, the devil might have did that. You know, you'll never hear me say that. You'll never hear me say that. Does this make sense to you? This is for somebody. I don't know who this is for, but that was a boom. That was, there was some thunder on that, man. When the vow of the Nazarite was fulfilled, I'll get you out of here, don't worry. Super Bowl's for five hours, so in the next four hours, I'd like to come see something. So when the Nazarite fulfilled the vow, and I'm going to move fast, he had to present an offering. He had to present a ram. He had to present his hair, and he had to present grain and wine. So the, the ram in the Old Testament is symbolic of a king. So when the Nazarite, here again, coming back to Jesus, he had to present a kingly offering. So Jesus, fulfilling the vow or the office of the Nazarite, presented himself. He couldn't offer a greater offering, a greater kingly offering than himself because he himself was king. He, they had to present their hair, which was symbolic of their strength. Jesus gave his strength. He's on the cross. He says, my strength is dried up like clay, Psalm 22. He presented his strength. He had to present grain or bread and wine. Now, does that sound familiar? He had to come with bread and wine because he was fulfilling the Nazarite. So Jesus has fulfilled the vow of the Nazarite. What does that mean? It means you can be restored. It means you can be delivered. That's what it means. That's what it means. The prophetic meaning of the vow was to release blessing. What is the blessing at the end? The Lord says to Moses, after all of this is done, he says, listen, when you get my people in front of you, I want you to declare a blessing. He didn't tell him to ask for a blessing. He told him, declare the blessing. Whole different thing between asking. Asking means give me something what is not mine. Declaring means make them know what is really theirs. We're declaring this over your life. This is who you are. This is what you are. And so the priests were to declare the blessing. They weren't to ask God to bless the people. They were to declare it. So they were to declare a blessing over the lives of the people. He says, the Lord, let it be done this way. Speak to the sons of Aaron. This is what you shall say to the children of Israel when my people are together. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his face or countenance upon you. And the Lord give you peace. And so you shall speak to my people because I will bless them. He said, you're going to make them know this every time they're together because I want them to know I'm going to bless them. So we, what I want you to do when we're going to break this down a little bit, and this, I believe, because Jesus has fulfilled the Nazarite vow, this isn't just some abstract blessing. This is a blessing that can be activated. This is a blessing that can be released. And this is a blessing that can be experienced. It's not just a poem. And I believe that God attached that blessing over the Nazarite so that it was indica indicative that when this vow is fulfilled, this blessing will be released in fullness. And I believe because Jesus has fulfilled the Nazarite vow that this blessing can be released in fullness. Anybody want the fullness? <laughs> One of you? <laughs> Next slide. Next slide. Adonai, the Lord. The word Adonai in the, in the Hebrew means binding foundation. What does it mean? I'm going to just break this down for you. It means bounding foundation. What it means? The one who holds it all together, may he bless you. Don't you want the one that holds it all together to bless you? Amen. You don't want the one who's fallen apart to be the one that's blessing you. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? The one who's falling apart, may he bless you. No, the one who can hold it all together, let him bless you. Amen. Adonai means binding foundation. It means ruling stone or guide stone. So here's the key point. 
When they would build a building, they would set the cornerstone and the whole building was laid out off the cornerstone. Any of you in building construction, you know this. One of the first things you do is you set the corner and off the corner, the whole building is constructed. If they're constructing a ceiling, in particular, we know something called a keystone. When they would build archways in the ancient days, they would insert a keystone. And without the keystone, the whole building would fall down. This is the same thing. Adonai, the guide stone. Adonai, the keystone. The stone that the builders rejected is now the chief stone. Right? This is the idea. Adonai, Lord, to the degree that you line up with the guide stone, to the degree that you implement the keystone, will be to the degree that your life is blessed. This is a progression. Line up with the guide stone. May the Lord bless you. When you line up with the guide stone, blessing is released. When you line up with the guide stone, protection is released. You come under blessing, you come under protection. When you acknowledge Jesus as Lord, you become spiritually blessed. Do you not? Amen. Do you not? Amen. Do you not? Something happened to you, forgiveness of sins, clean, everything's whole, I'm, I'm better. You know, something happens with you. You're receiving blessing because you're lining up with the guide stone. You're lining up with the, with the keystone. What would happen if you took every area of your life and began to line it up with the guide stone? Your health, your finances, your, your relationships, every, your time. What would happen if you began to line everything up with the guide stone? You would be blessed. The blessing is released in proportion to our alignment with the guide stone. I didn't say you're not saved. I never said that. I've confessed Jesus. But that doesn't mean you're blessed in every area of your life. You understand that? Guidestone. Have you, and, had, and then it says, that, okay, where was I? So bless you. May he keep you. May the Lord keep you. It's protection. There's a protection over you. When you're in Christ, you've aligned with the guidestone. You've given your spirit to God. The Lord will keep you. He's gonna, he knows how to keep those who are his until the day. That's what the Bible says. He will keep you. So in Christ, in faith, in the spirit, you're aligned. And so there's a protection over you. It's the same area with other arenas. Blessing in other, these other arenas. What does blessing constitute? Because we got a misconception of blessing. Blessing doesn't mean you don't go through things. Say it with me. Blessing, come on, help me out. Blessing does not mean I don't go through things. But it does mean I go through it. That's right. You go through it. You pass through the water, but that doesn't overtake you. You go through the fire, but it doesn't consume you. That's blessing. You walk in what others sink in. That's blessing. When everybody's going down, you're standing and you don't know why. Amen. That's a blessing. Amen. When everybody else is losing, you're sustained and you don't know why. That's blessing. And from blessing with survival, success, significance, it's a progressive. There's, again, another progress that God wants to do in our lives. So are you aligned with a guide stone? So why are these areas in my life not blessed? Well, I'll give you two reasons. One is, could it be there's a lack of alignment with a guide stone? And then I'll give you a second one. Could it be that you're not grateful for what it is that you already have? Amen. Have you never counted your blessings? Have you ever actually stepped back and made an acknowledgement of what God has actually done for you? I had a vision one time. We, we had worship night here, and we were just praying, and we do spiritual interactive things. It's what we are. It's who we are. It's who we're ever going to be. And so I felt like the Lord was telling me. I, see, I saw storehouses filled with boxes. God had blessed people to so much, and I felt like the Lord wanted to give them more. But the thanksgiving was the way that they made room for more, and that God couldn't bring more into their lives because they refused to even be grateful for what it was that they already had. Oh, come on, we could do a talk about this as parents, right? Your kid wants all this new stuff, but they're not even grateful for what they already have. How motivated are you to give them something good? You, know, you want to. You totally want to bless them. You totally want to love them, but you don't really have a lot of motivation because you're not even grateful for what I gave you. You know, when you start being grateful for what I gave you, well, I'll give you more. It's the same idea. Next slide. 
He will keep you, he will protect you, who causes face to shine on you. This is huge. To understand that Jesus is always in a good mood. Amen. When the Lord looks at you, his face is shining. Amen. He's shining. He said, I don't know what, you don't know what I did. It does not matter. He loves you. He lo we use this first service. You're now a son and daughter. Okay, so we use this in first service. Okay, what parent of you, you got a little baby. Let's say you got this little baby and you, you, know, you just put on this beautiful little rumper and their little fat legs are just sticking out of the rumper and you put a little ball in their head and they look beautiful, amazing, oh, how cute. She looks so cute. We're going to go to grandma's house. And right when you get ready to take her in the car, she just blows out her diaper. I'm talking blowing it out. In the car seat, down the leg, all over herself. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You never look at that child and go, now you're not my child. You're not my child anymore. In fact, I'm going to leave you here. I'm going on without you, and you can clean up this mess yourself. No parent would do that. So if no earthly parent would do that, what makes you think that the Heavenly Father would deny you of who you are if just because you've blown out your diaper? All an indicator of is when you make a mess is it's a relationship of a poor choice or it's a lack of spiritual maturity in that area. That's all it is. It's a lack of self-control or spiritual maturity in that area. You don't condemn them and go, when are you going to get control of yourself? When are you going to stop? Do you know I just bought you that jumper? You know, and then you, then you dress them up and here's my favorite. You ever have them do it to you twice, right? And then finally, you know, you know when a parent, you know, you know, like if you're ever at a mall and you see a baby just walking around in a diaper, you know that that kid has probably blown out every, every piece of clothing that that mom brought with her. You know what I'm talking about? You put a new jumper on, pff, there it goes again. You're like, oh, my gosh. All right, that's it. You're in your diaper from now on. <laughs> Jesus never denies us who we are, and he never not, will not help us clean up the mess. Amen. He will not, not fail to help you clean up the mess. You've got to see him as good. You've got to see him as for you, even if you're blowing out your diaper. Serious. It's an easy way to understand it, right? It gives you a real visual of what I'm talking about. But he is for you. He is towards you. His face shines on you. It's what it is. He's not going to leave you there. He's going to grow you, right? That's the idea. He's going to move you out and up and in. I know the thoughts that I have towards you, says the Lord. Jeremiah 29, 11, thoughts of peace to give you a hope and a future. What's the Lord think of me? He tells you right there. Hope, peace, future. I love you. I'm for you. I'm not against you. Who told you I was against you? I never told you I was against you. Who told you that? Then you will call upon me and pray to me, and I will listen to you. When will we call upon him? Do you know the Bible tells us when you'll call upon the Lord? 24-7. Right? When you understand that he's for you. When you understand that his thoughts towards you are not of evil, but of hope in the future. When you understand that, then you will call upon me. Then you'll get it. We don't call upon the Lord because we don't believe he's good. We don't ask him because we don't believe he's good. We don't believe he's generous. Do you know God is actually honored by your asking? Because we believe that he's loving, we're declaring you're loving, you're giving, you're generous, you're kind, you're merciful. When we ask him, we have not because we ask not. There's all kinds of stuff here. I'll throw this one in. You know, we talked about this first service. Jesus meets the woman at the well, and he says, if you knew the gift of God that was sitting in front of you, you would ask. If you really understood who I am, if you really understood who I am, you would ask me. You don't ask me because you don't understand who I am. You, well, I just, you know, you don't understand who he is. You don't understand. You see yourself in light of something, you don't understand. Well, I don't believe God's going to do it. You don't understand who he is. I don't believe God really loves me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know who he is. 
You don't know who he is. You have to confront what is it about me? Where's the area of disbelief that, I, that I'm having a problem with? Next slide. So it causes face to shine upon you. You will become and begin to move into his power, into his grace, into his purpose when you get the fact that he's for you. He's not against you. So that's the second part. So here it is. We, Lord, blessing, uh, protection. His face is shining on me. Wow, Lord, you love me. And then what do we do? We go to him for enabling power. Be gracious to you. That's what grace is, enabling power. We don't call upon him because we don't believe he's good. We don't go to him because we actually think we can do it ourselves. Oh, really? Well, that's, that's going to be a short trip, that one right there. You can't, man. It's God's enabling power. Grace is the enabling power of God. And so what happens is, watch this. This is, again, it's a progression. I'm skipping ahead a little bit, but I'm running out of time. So the idea is, is that when we actually believe that he loves us and we're for us, we go to him and we begin to ask him, if you know who I am, and you know how I feel towards you. You'd ask me. Here's the same thing. We understand his face is shining upon us. He sees us. He loves me. Even when I'm against myself, he's for me. Lord, I need your help. I need your power. What is that? It is the spirit of God. It is the power of God through his Holy Spirit. For what? For you to do. For you to be. And for you to become. You can't do it without him. When you know that he's good, you'll come to him and you say, Lord, I can't do this. I need your spirit. Help me, help me, help me, help me. Show me, show me, show me, show me, show me. And then once you ask him, you know what happens when people ask him? Favor comes on their life. Because Jesus likes people who partner with him. This is the second part. That is, lift up his countenance on you. That's different than making his face. When you see his face shining, you know he loves him. When he lifts his countenance upon you, it means he's looking at you with special attention. This is a person who knows who I am. This is a person who knows who they are. This is a person who is asking me. And so he will look upon you with favor comes in that regard. When you know he loves you and you begin to walk in his enabling power, favor comes on, the, on you. Nothing fair about favor, people. Nothing fair about it. So what I would show you in this is to understand how this works. God writes these things in his words. You're like, well, why doesn't he draw you a map? He does. But the map is spiritual, and spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And he hides things from those who have no honor for them. But if you will honor him and honor his prophetic and honor his processes, he reveals and opens. And while some see this as a blessing, I don't see it as that. I see it, yes, it's a blessing opened up through several things, but I also see it as a process because it is. And we ask questions of God when it's clear in his word why things are not. It's clear. You know, well, why God said he's going to bless me? Well, I don't believe he's going to bless me. Why? Because I'm not being blessed in this area. Well, why don't we make an adjustment? And why don't we line that area of your life up with the guide stone? And why don't we walk in that for a while? And let's see if the blessing doesn't come. It will. 100% of the time. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Let him show you divine favor and then let him flourish your life. That's what it means to give you peace. So when you start asking him and walking with him and partnering with him, he looks at you with special attention. And that favor enables your life to flourish. That's what the word peace means. The word your life rises. It means to flourish in every area. Again, a misunderstanding. We think that peace is serenity. Peace is not serenity in the Bible. Is the word shalom. It means to prosper in every way. So when they would greet one another, they would go shalom. May you prosper in every way. They wouldn't go, may you sit in a lotus position and may you be zen, you know, completely serene. That's not what they're saying. They would say shalom. Prosper in every way. May the Lord prosper you in every way. May the Lord prosper you. May the Lord prosper you in every way. That's what it meant. And the prosperity of God comes through the power of God. And the prosperity of God comes through the favor of God. And those things happen when you, when you begin to partner with him because you know he loves you. 
and you know he's for you. So it's a progression. He said, and so I, you shall say this to the children of Israel because I intend to bless him. So what's he saying? He wants this taught to his people because it's God's intention to bless you. You're created to be blessed. That is why he made you. You are made to be blessed. Not to be self-terminating in your blessing, but to learn how to receive a blessing that you might become a blessing. You can never become a blessing if you don't know how to receive a blessing. One of the biggest steps God's ever got to do with Christians' lives is get them to understand how to receive a blessing. Do you know how hard it is for God Jesus to get them to receive a get people to receive a blessing? It's very hard. The people who go, yeah, I want to be blessed and just pour it all on me, are a minority compared to the people who don't want who who have a hard time believing that God will bless them. Because to believe that God will bless them requires a level of humility. It requires like childlike faith. It requires something of us that we have a hard time giving. But the facts are is that you were create you were made to be blessed. So you may as well try to figure that out. He's made, I'm made to be blessed. And when favor's on your life, I tell Christians this, don't you cry when your harvest comes. Don't you go hide in a corner when you get breakthrough. <laughs> Marjorie, when that cyst on your kidney's gone, don't you hide in a corner. <laughs> My neighbor, cancer-free, I'm going to tell the church, man. I'm going to give Jesus glory. That's what I told my neighbor. It's like, you're not going to go hide that in the garage. Your harvest is come, man. That which you believed God for is present. Let him have glory. Let him have glory. He's not ashamed of it. He blessed you. You're made to be blessed. Say it with me. I am created <laughs> to be blessed. I don't understand it. And I have no, no reason. There's no reason why. But he loves me, and he wants to bless me. And say this to him. So, Father, help me to align my life in the greatest manner that I might begin to know and understand the greatness of your blessing. Next slide. This stuff is so interconnected. Like, I feel Ephesians, that you would know the, that you would know the height, the depth of your inheritance. This stuff is so interconnected. So it's a progression. We walk in his power. So it's an alignment. We align with him, it causes blessing and protection. We see his face shining, we go to him and we ask of him. And we receive grace, power. And then we walk out and his power, favor comes over our lives. And as favor comes over our lives, we flourish. It's as simple as that. Did you guys get anything out of this? Yeah? Uh, okay. <laughs> Alex, you get the participation award for today. <laughs> So let me bless you. Let's receive it. Let's receive it. Let's receive it. Let's receive it. Just open up your hearts and just receive it. I'm going to pronounce it over you. And it's funny, man. I, I, that last verse where he says, say it over my people because I will bless them. I've read that a, a bunch. And when I was just going over this chapter, that verse was standing out to me. And he's like, I want them to know it so that they will know that I want to bless them. Just receive it. Say the, the, let me just pray it over you. The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, and the Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance, his favor upon you, and give you peace in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you. God loves you. Have a great week. So we got a, um, so you know, EMT is going to happen, and then uh, essentials and school of the prophetics at four. And so Hank's a football fan, so I'm sure he's going to have you out of here early on that one.